All right, everyone, welcome to Magnifying God. I'm your host, Adam Michael, and it is with pleasure that we are doing this series, uh, and we've just completed the first section of this series, uh, Prepare to Overcome, which also was made into a workbook. And now the second part, part two, is called The Royal Priesthood. So the first part, the first section, was Equipping the Saints. The second section, or part two, is The Royal Priesthood. And we're going to be walking through chapter 12, and chapter 12 uh, is the priest of God. And there's a lot that goes along with being a, the priest of God, and there's so much, actually, that we're going to be making it two parts. With that being said, we're going to start out kind of with the tabernacle and the fact that it's broken down into three inner court, outer court, and holy place. So it's three sections. So you've got the outer court, you've got the holy place, and then you have the most holy place. And it's interesting, though, when you when you think about that for just a moment, you've got that everywhere in Scripture. You've got three parts or three levels of holiness. For instance, Moses on the mountain. Moses was the most holy place. And then you have halfway down, you've got Joshua, who's in the holy place. And then you have the people, the Israelites, on the bottom of the mountain, and they are in that outer court. I find that so interesting because you could even go back to the Garden of Eden. You've got the Garden, which is the most holy place. Then you've got Eden, which is a holy place. And then you have the rest of the world, the outer court. You also have that with Jesus' ministry. You've got the inner three, Peter, James, and John. They would be part of, let's say, the most holy place because they had the most intimacy with the Lord. You then have them, the, the, the 12, the rest, they would be the holy place. And then you get to the outer court, which is the 72. And you see this time and time again, and it's so interesting. And, you you know, God speaks in patterns. He speaks in, in, in this, this rhythm, this repetition that you see all through um, this whole book, this lovely, wonderful Word of God. And he speaks through this. And it's amazing when you start breaking it down. So that's going to be uh, the first part, which is the tabernacle. And the second part is this priesthood. I mean, first off, what does it even mean to be a royal priesthood? Second off, what are the qualifications of a priest? And these are things we're going to be touching upon today. And I've got Debbie Simpson on the line, and she's going to be breaking down this uh, chapter with you. Now, keep in mind, it's going to be in two parts. And you're going to have the tabernacle, you're going to have the priesthood, and then... The second part, or part two, is going to be the responsibility of the priests, what we are called and responsible for. Because if you look back in the times when these Levitical priests were working, they were the protectors of space. They were the closest to this tabernacle, the closest to God. They had a great high priest that would actually go into the very presence of God, which was the most holy place. And they weren't given land. They were not given promised land because God was 
their inheritance. And these people, you'll find out, there's a lot of qualifications. And there's things that would get you out of being a priest if this were to come upon you. So, without further ado, we are going to have Debbie Simpson uh, talking about this part two, this royal priesthood, specifically chapter 12 of this part two, uh, and it's going to be the priest of God, which talks about the tabernacle, and then the priesthood itself. Debbie, you there? I am. Good morning, Adam. Good morning. Uh, yeah, feel free to uh, enlighten us on, on what this chapter is all about, and uh, you can take it away. Okay, thank you. Good. Yes, well, um, just to try to keep things clear, I know that everything that's being talked about in these podcasts is that they're a little on the periphery, if at all, in what has been brought into our understanding of the Christian walk and the and relationship with Jesus. So basically, as a recap, this, this, this manuscript was written, this was a call um, of God to intimacy. And it began uh, over a year ago as I got on my knees and was silent. I said, Lord, I have nothing to offer. He was showing me that we were in the last days. And as I was reading through the um, Old Testament under the scriptures that talked about in the last day, what I saw repeated was, let all the earth be silent before him. Let all the earth be silent before him. The Lord has risen from his holy temple. Let all the earth be silent. So I said, Lord, I need to be silent. And I started a discipline of getting on my knees and being silent, first for 15 minutes, then for 30, and then for an hour, and then for two hours, just silent before him. And as this discipline was cultivated and grown up in my life, all of a sudden, I began to truly hear when the Lord was speaking with me through the Holy Spirit, which is why we've talked about in these previous chapters about the, what the word spiritual really means and why it's legitimate and why we can trust that this can be a part of our walk and needs to be a part of our walk without feeling like we're presumptuous or without stiff arming the Holy Spirit because um, this is what is needful. We all understand that we serve and have come into a covenant with a spiritual God. And if we want to stay in step with him, it's got to be a spiritual walk as well. And what does that mean? So as um, the intimacy with God in my own life began to grow and I began to understand the deeper ramifications of these scriptures, um, what God was also bringing to my mind was the need that this is God's call to all of his people. In this time, he brought me then the springboard into this entire manuscript of 1 Peter 4.11. If any of you speak, let him speak as an oracle of God. Well, I first, I did what I always do, well, what's this definition? And we're going to talk about that as you go in there, go into this scriptures. What is the oracle of God? And um, in the biblical use, by, it's established by God for his people. How is that defined to be woven into our identity as believers? Then, as is typical, I went to its first use in Scripture so that I would have the backdrop always and a foundation on which to build to keep in context and to maintain truthfulness and veracity with what I was learning with the whole full counsel of God, which is why 
you hear Debbie Simpson talking on these podcasts, but the book is authored by Christos Perkletos. Christos Perkletos is the author's name on the book because God was revealing these things to me and I did not want to put my name or bring attention to myself for something that God himself was bringing revelation to all of his people. And if you read the about the author section in the back of the book, it is basically the call to God's people, all believers, to come to a place of intimacy with him. So Christos Perikletos in Greek translates the anointed summons to his side. That's what this is about. That's who's authoring the book. The anointed Christos summons to his side, Perikletos. This is not a name of a person per se. Rather, it is a phrase that communicates the message of the book. So that is, if that helps to clarify, the, um, as we move forward then into what we're going to talk about today, we see that the Old Testament pictures for believers spiritual truths that reflect heavenly realities of God and his kingdom. And that's what's being uncovered through progressive revelation from beginning to end of God's word. God develops through step-by-step disclosure instructions for regaining the original state of man in intimacy with his God that existed in the garden before the fall. The qualifications of the priesthood, the layout of the temple, picture specifically the positioning of God's people in his kingdom and the criteria for drawing near. This is the disclosure. This is the instructions. So, you know, let's take a moment and clarify in the first section of this book, Preparing, um, preparing the Saints, God revealed through Old Testament principles and pictures the heavenly reality of the kingdom of God and its protocol. What do I mean by that? Well, covenant. The protocol of the kingdom is covenant being instituted. That when you come into a covenant, obedience to God's word brings protection, salvation, freedom from the molestation of your enemy, right? And that with disobedience comes destruction and ruin. Also, the believer's position in the kingdom as a citizen, he is an ambassador with its, all of its associated duties, rights, privileges, and representation and representative power of the king. All believers will be quick to say we're an ambassador to Christ, but no one really deeply studies what is an ambassador, what does an ambassador do, and how does that become appropriated in my identity now as a new creation in Christ? So that was a lot of the disclosure of these truths that were revealed in the first section. Now, in section two, the heavenly reality of the sanctity of God and his holy space is being illuminated. That is, God himself is giving instructions concerning these divine things. What is being revealed is that when it comes to intimacy with a holy God, 
there are requirements and qualifications involved that are higher than typically taught or commonly understood. This is all a part of the broken down walls and the ruins of Isaiah 58.12. It says, and those from among you will rebuild the ancient ruins. So obviously, they need rebuilt and they're broken down. goes on. You will raise up age-old foundations. See, these foundations need raised up. They're broken down, they're crumbling, and in some places they're absent altogether. And you will be called a restorer of the streets in which to dwell. Those who do this, this is what they will be called. So the last day's believer have been born into this truth of Isaiah 58, 12. This is the truth that we were born into, the desolations of many generations. Okay, so really what's at stake? Well, because these walls and these foundations have been broken, what is at stake? Well, in section one, we learned that what was at stake was our protection from the loss of the walls. And in section two, it's intimacy with God. That's what's at stake. We see in Exodus 28 and 29, the instructions given to those who administer as priests before the Lord. We see in Exodus 25, 9, and 40, that it is after the tabernacle of God's sanctuary in heaven. Why? That he may dwell among his people. We see that the patterned layout of the tabernacle illustrates positions of rank with corresponding duties. The regulations governing the sanctity of God's dwelling place provide object lessons regarding realm distinctions. That's what, Adam, you were talking about. Laws regarding sacred space allow or disallow a physical closeness to God. So that is that that is the issues here. And how how did I get to these these this place to this understanding? Definitions. That's how. I took God's word. I took the word that He used, and then I looked it up in His. Bible dictionary. And this is what was revealed regarding the words that God chose. So before we continue to dig more into this temple layout, it'd be helpful to recognize that there is a shift in focus. Section one is focused on the believer and his God-given position and identity. But now we're in section two. This is focused on God and his holiness. Therefore, the discussion now turns from what God has done for his people and becomes what his people do for him and for the privilege of gaining greater and greater intimacy with a holy God that requires sanctified space. We see this in our natural lives all the time. You don't meet somebody and the first time that you've met and decide, oh, this is, we're going to be great friends, that you don't immediately become their soulmate. Your hearts are not immediately in intimate um, relationship. That is something that is grown into. And as you learn who they are and you become respectful of, you know, who they are as people, and as you become intentional to protect the relationship, the intimacy grows. This, this is something that, that we, we operate in all the time is just people. 
What is being addressed throughout this book is the broken down foundation of our faith that was described in Isaiah 58, 12. What is present in our understanding has been built on fragments of what has remained. That's what's already present. And we do have some understanding and we have built upon, you know, a godly foundation. But it's fragments of what has remained. Through his word, God is restoring the portions of the foundations that have been lost. And he's raising up to completeness the foundation originally laid. In the beginning, a piece of the foundation missing is the biblical definition of sanctity or sanctified when used in reference to this character trait of God. This character trait of God is the reason for the layout of the tabernacle, and it is the reason for the priesthood. So that's, that's why this is so important. When God laid out the temple, it was a way of communicating to his people and for them to picture and understand that his sanctity demands distinction and therefore it's non-negotiable. So this is seen as we look into these definitions. Our 21st century Western English definition of sanctified means set apart. Well, this darkens our understanding as the fullness of what it means and what it requires is lost. Leviticus 10.3 says, I will be sanctified in them that come close or nigh unto me. That word nigh means close is in physical proximity. We're talking those who are permitted into the most holy place, which is called the oracle of God. That was first used, and we'll, we'll, we'll hit on this later. But the most holy place, we're all familiar with that. But in the um, writings on this, in First Kings, as Solomon was building the temple, it was called the oracle. See, this is how it connects with who we are and, and, and what that means for us as believers. When God says in First Peter 4.11, <clears throat> speak as an oracle. When that's the most holy place, what does this mean? What does it signify? What does it picture? How does it translate? So what we see here is I'll be sanctified by them that comes close to me. So what does sanctify? Okay, sanctified by divine, by excuse me, divine decree must be kept separated from the profane. And we've talked about this. Profane just means common, being a common person, commonality, by an inviolable division so as to maintain a distinction between the two spheres. This is your definition. Sanctified is a divine decree that states there must be kept a separation from the profane by an inviolable. This is unviolationable. This cannot be violated. And there has to be a division to maintain the distinction between the two spheres. So what, the sphere of the common and the sphere of the profane. That's why you've got people in the outer court. They're very much a part of the assembly. But because of their commonness, their profanity, they could not come in to a place of greater holiness. So as we go on, included in this definition, and this is your definition, 
is the understanding that the priesthood, this is all part of your definition, included in the sanctified definition, is the understanding that the priesthood is dedicated to the sphere of the sanctified. The sphere or the realm of the sanctified is kept distinct from the profane, that is the common, because it is in this sphere that the Holy One of all the earth dwells, right? Nevertheless, the sphere of the holy can operate within the sphere of the world as long as the integrity between the two spheres is strictly maintained. That's the, that's, that's the thrust. Not only is the sphere of the sanctified distinct from the sphere of the profane, it's in opposition to it. Okay, This is what the concept of holiness is born out of. The concept of holiness is born out of the inviolability of this distinction between the sphere of the sanctified and therefore holy and the sphere of the profane. So I know that sounds very, very wordy, but it makes this is this is the theological word book of the Old Testament that is a compilation of definitions from authors that date back to the first very first century. And then through. So these are the original understanding of what these words were communicating in their original language. So because it was a priestly obligation to protect the sanctity of God's holy space, we see now how this word sanctified impacts our ability and our qualification to be a priest. And now that ups the stakes. We just don't read that we're a royal priesthood and think, oh, okay, well, I'm a born-again believer, therefore I'm the priesthood. And then we go ahead and we continue to walk in a profane lifestyle as a believer. Okay, so that brings us to the next question. What's a priest, right? Let's look at what's God's definition of what a priest is. By definition, a priest of God is one of high rank who holds greater responsibility and greater privilege by virtue of his position before the Lord. We operate this in the natural all the time. That as we deal with different people, we have greater degrees of intimacy. With that greater intimacy with people, we have greater responsibilities given to us in that relationship. Oh, can you be my bridesmaid? Can you be my maid of honor? Can you be my best man? Right? And then by virtue of that, there's greater privilege. So this is not, and this isn't something that we're not already operating in. So this priest, and included in this definition, receives divine decrees and executes the precise and exact will of God to transact kingdom business. This carries the weighty responsibility to maintain realm distinction and sanctified sphere integrity. It all goes back to that all the time. That's the root. That's the foundation. As priests of God enter into these spheres, it would then be mandated that they be sanctified as well so as not to profane the sacred space with their presence, allowing them physical proximity to God as a ministering official before him. That's what you're seeing in the layout of the temple. That's what God is showing us. So as noted in this definition, the sphere of the sanctified is not only kept separate, but it's in opposition to what's common. And priests of God have been appointed by God to attend to his sacred space. That's what they're about. 
It is imperative that any who would call themselves a priest of God know that they only qualify by these standards. To tolerate the common in our lives would disqualify from the priesthood. See, as as we begin to understand what these definitions entail, all of a sudden, the issues become startlingly more clear. This is how sanctified relates to the priesthood. All right. But so how does it relate to the tabernacle? So this is this is what we're talking about today. But as but as we understand the priesthood, we all know that only the Levites and the priests could enter the holy place, which is a holier zone than the outer courts. And then we all know that only the high priest, the one of greatest rank, could enter into the most holy place, the place of greatest intimacy and highest honor of all. So that's the layout of the tabernacle. When one understands realm distinctions and holiness zones, and that's what we're seeing in the layout of this tabernacle, he begins to understand the necessity of maintaining sanctified spiritual integrity. See, that's one of the profound, that's part of the foundation that's been lost, the desolations of many generations. Okay, that we have to recognize the necessity of maintaining sanctified spiritual integrity. This is pictured again in the layout of the temple, the outer court. Any of the congregation could gather. Only the priests could enter the holy place, the Levites, of closer proximity to God, and only the high priest could enter the most holy place, the very oracle of God, and the place of greatest proximity or physical closeness which includes corresponding greatest intimacy with God. Now, we see this all the time in, in, in our own relationships. So what we're going to be investigating is that we see patterned after the temple in heaven, Hebrews 8, 5, progressive holiness zones. The closer to God, the holier the zone, and the holier the, the zone, the greater the degree of sanctification required. Right? You know, you've got an, an amazing a business corporation and on the lower levels of the sky rise, you know, building in inner city Chicago, you've got everybody, but who's, you know, but, but, but you've got the CEO on the top level, Well, who's right beneath him, right? You, you've got those that are closest to him are higher ranking in the company and they have greater Closeness physically and greater influence, right? And then as you go down different floors, you know, getting closer and closer to the first floor, you know, you get greater distance and less intimacy. That's what we're seeing patterned in the tabernacle, all right? We see in Ephesians 2.18, I want to be clear on this, that everyone has access to God through Christ, Right, And that's what people are going to say right off the bat. Listen, it says in Scripture that the veil has been rent, and we all have access to him through the veil. That is absolutely true. All have access to God himself. All right? But what we're going to be talking about is levels, varying degrees of understanding and depths of understanding. All right? What we're looking at here is that... um, this layout of the tabernacle foundational understanding that God is going to build upon in this lesson 
is the the greater and the deeper understanding as we grow up into full maturity in our faith. All right. So we've talked about sanctified. We've talked about the priesthood and how all that relates to the tabernacle. Now that we have a more complete and really a truthful understanding of what the issues are, what's at stake and why, now it just becomes easier to relate the biblical requirements listed um, in Leviticus 21 to the importance of a sanctified walk of faith as believers who lay claim to the royal priesthood of 1 Peter 2, 9. So we're going to be talking about that Levitical priesthood um, and their requirements in the next podcast. But as we move forward here, this chapter on the tabernacle and the priesthood show what God has implemented as a type and a shadow that pictures in some way Jesus or the believer or heavenly realities. All right. And so as we go through these outer court, holy place, and most holy place pictures, I want to just make the disclaimer, this is not exhaustive. There's entire volumes that have been written about all the types and shadows of all the things that are pictured in all of these places. So the purpose today and here and in this book is just to make the point that these are spiritual truths being revealed in these physical pictures. And then once we understand that, we then move on to how do we grow up into this in our in our walk. So as we look at um, the outer court, all right, the outer court, it pictures Passover, it pictures the new birth, it pictures the, the, the beginning of the walk of a new believer as he learns obedience and conforms himself to the image of the pattern son. So this is the inception of our faith. We were brought into the kingdom. And this picture is the new believer being brought into the kingdom. And there, as, as you read through the book, you will discover, as we go through this, we just talk about what does this picture, and then how does it relate? So what we see is the, there's in the outer court, there's the bronze laver. The bronze laver is a huge like bowl-type structure that's filled with water that the priests would wash themselves in for ceremonial washing. Bronze in Scripture signifies judgment. So being this bronze, it's the judgment of um, the, the sin. As you've come in, the Word of God begins to cleanse from the water, and the judgment of this Word brings cleansing. All right? And the water is for the purifying. It pictures the water of the Word. It pictures the washing of the word through repentance and a water baptism. And it was daily used. It reminds us of our need for daily cleansing as we go to the word of God. And this is all things that a new believer coming to their faith are seeing. In addition, we see um, the, the uh, brazen altar. That was this altar where fire burned perpetually and people brought their sacrifices and here this is where whole burnt offerings were sacrificed so it pictures that in covenant you fully give your life to God and there's nothing left all of you is burned up so it pictures Christ as the burnt offering it pictures a believer coming into their faith 
So, but this is the proximity to God at this point. They're on holy ground. You are part of the assembly. You're at the doorway to the tabernacle. Okay. But then as you continue, then we have the holy place. This is called the nave or the holy place. Synonymous. This picture is Pentecost and the baptism of the Holy Spirit. This is another, this is why. Because here is where the Levites and the priests were able to enter. So, okay, now all of a sudden we have a priest that's now part of the picture. Well, let's look at what is our definition of the priest. Get this. The priests were designated, here it is, chief ruler, principal officer, one officiating. His position denotes rank as he is a minister of sacred things, right? So by definition, a priest carries with it rank with associated duties and privileges. What is in this holy place that these priests are ministering to? We've got the golden candlestick or the lampstand, right? So this is, as a believer, grows up into their faith. They become more one who is able to handle sacred things well. What's the sacred thing? Your faith, the word of God, your obedience. And as you learn to grow up in your faith, you're handling the sacred thing well. The word of God, the covenant of God, the, the name of Jesus, the name of God as a representation, and you're handling these things better than perhaps a new person or someone more, more immature in their faith. And why? Because you're dealing now as a, as a believer with one who is in what I would call the candlestick realm. You're, the candlestick was kept filled with oil. Oil was poured into that to keep the fire burning. We all know the oil pictures the Holy Spirit. The flame pictures the Holy Spirit. The candlestick pictures light. Jesus is the light of the world. We see here also in the holy place the golden altar where the priest would stand with incense, which pictures prayers that are ascending or wafting up of intercession. So now we have another altar that's burning, but this one is not the burning of the sacrifice like in the outer court. This is the burning of incense, a pleasing aroma of perpetual intercessory prayer, even as Jesus patterned for us. We see here the table of showbread, the table. The, this is a place of communion. When covenant was made, you shared a meal so that you are committing allegiance this is all pictured here. So as we grow up as believers in the maturity of our faith, these are the sacred things that we handle well. And therefore, as priests, we are able to um, come into this place of greater intimacy. And we're handling the Holy Spirit well, candlestick. We're handling intercessory prayer well, altar, golden altar. We're handling the word of God well because it is a table of showbread, all right? The service that's performed in the holy place is one of intercession, all right? And the priest who ministered these sacred things enjoyed greater privilege and was known to have the ear of the king. That's part of the definition, by the way. This is in the theological word book. He, he was such that he was known 
to have the ear of the king and who could make suggestions that the king follows. So we could see here that with this greater intimacy comes greater privilege, just as you've got people in your life that you would never listen to anything they said. But then you have other people in your life and they carry more weight of influence. The proximity to God, how close are you to God? This priest in the holy place ministers before the veil, but he couldn't pass beyond the veil. So there's still growing process that needs to take place. And then finally, we come to the most holy place. Now, who can enter here? Not the priest, but the high priest. Let's see what this definition looks like in the theological book. High priest. This is basically a word that's put in the superlative or, or an emphasis. So it's defined as this. The chief, chief ruler. The principal, principal officer. The highest rank among high rank. All right. So the service that's performed in the most holy place or the oracle. So now keep in mind that this is what we're called as believers in 1 Peter 4.11 to operate and speak as. So this is why this is so important to understand this picture because we're called to operate in the spirit realm and in our spiritual walk with our spiritual God, what he's picturing for us here in the oracle. So here the high priest, the highest rank among the high rank, he wears the breastplate of judgment. What? This signifies how he represents the assembly and how that he protects himself by placing a covering over his own breast. Why? Because he cannot violate sanctified space with his presence. He has got to keep himself protected with his breastplate of judgment. And he, this, is, this is a covering that he places over his own heart. He does this. <clears throat> he dons this. Then when he comes into this most holy place, he brings with him in this breastpiece of judgment, the Urim and Thummim. This is loosely translated lights and perfections. There's really no, I know, um, common agreement among biblical scholars. They, they can't trace really the original root, but it's, it's commonly agreed upon lights and perfections. But it pictures for us the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer. So, the Rima word of God is what this is connected with. The Urim and Thummim, this would be a representation of the Holy Spirit in the heart of the believer operating in the Rima or the spoken word of God that operates in agreement with and in subjection to the written or Logos word of God. Okay? So this is what's going on with the most high rank among high rank. This is where he's at. This is what he has. This is what he's operating in. Okay, he ministers before the ark of God, the very presence of God. Here, the proximity to God, he's, here the high priest ministers beyond the veil, the place of highest honor, greatest privilege, and deepest intimacy. So, you know, before we close, I'd like to make clear the believer's relationship to the oracle of God. What birthed this entire section of this manuscript, you know, prepared to overcome, was the verse 1 Peter 4.11, okay? And as I studied the word oracle to equip myself to obey this verse, I had no idea 
that that this manuscript was going to be birthed from this this investigation. I just knew that I was called to speak. And what God had laid on my heart prior to that was that Jesus was the pattern son. And as the pattern, Jesus said, I only speak what I hear the Father saying, and I only do what I see the Father doing. It was my heart's cry for years, Lord. Jesus only spoke what he heard you saying. How can I hear what you're saying? This is God's answer for me. And I thought this for years. I was like, Lord, I want to hear you. I think I do, but I'm not sure. I don't have confidence that what I'm thinking that I'm hearing, I'm actually hearing. Well, when I got alone with the Lord and I kept my mouth shut for one, two hours every day, then God said, finally, I can speak and you'll hear and listen. So this 1 Peter 4.11 is the beginning of the journey that brought about the penning of this manuscript as the Lord began to reveal these things to me. Then, as I looked at the definition, this led to its first use in Scripture. That read, led me to the Old Testament, most holy place, also called the Oracle. So in 1 Peter 4.11, it says, Whoever speaks, let him speak as it were the utterance, the oracle of God. The verb speaks, the verb speaks, used here is present tense, indicative mood, active voice. So this, I always say verb tense is where the rubber meets the road. The, the definition tells you the what. The verb tense tells you the how. And we can know the what all we want, but if we don't know how to do it, it's just empty information sitting useless in our mind. But once we know how, then we can implement it. And that's your verb tense. So the verb here speaks is present tense. That indicates a continuous action. It starts in the present and it continues in the future. Okay? So it's continuous. Indicative mood will assert that this is a fact. Active voice says you do it. This isn't something that God does for the believer. This is something the believer does in obedience to God. They choose to do it. It's by self-volition by your free will, free will offering, so to speak. So the definition of the word oracle is defined as a divine utterance, the very utterance of God. So this verse could actually be read, whenever you speak, whenever you speak, you starting now and forever after, You speak the very utterance that God himself would speak. This is a fact. So how does this happen? How does this happen? It happens because, you know, we're in the oracle. Okay. What we see is the Old Testament patterns and pictures for us for a second witness, for a confirmation. In the oracle were, or in the ark, were the tablets of stone. The tablets of stone picture the written word of God. Then you have the umum and the thummim in the breastplate. This pictures the rima word of God. All right, so you see here that even in the Old Testament, You've got the Logos word and the Rima word working side by side. The Rima word is always in agreement with and in subjection to the written word of God. The oracle, defined by God in the Old Testament, it comes from the root word debar, and it means to converse, to declare, to speak, or to communicate 
as identified in Scripture. All right? It's identified, the oracle in the Old Testament, as the Holy of Holies, the most holy place, the inner sanctuary. And we talked about all this, you know, in our last section when we went into 1 Corinthians you know, 2.9, when it talked about, eye has not seen, ear has not heard, nor has it entered into the mind of man all that God has in store for him. But the Spirit of God, remember this, that knows and searches the depths of God and the mind of God reveals these things to the spirit of a man, but the carnal man cannot receive them because they're spiritually attained, they're spiritually discerned. That's what this is all about. This is why the Rima word is so important because this is this is seen in play in 1 Corinthians 2.9 with the spirit of God communicating God's counsels to the spirit of a man. That is the Rima word in play. So what we see here is that the journey of every believer begins in the outer court realm of this tabernacle patterned after God's abode in heaven. We saw that in Hebrews 8.5. But the goal of the oracle, but the goal is the oracle of God, the most holy place, and the place of greatest intimacy. Through Christ, every believer has access to God. By his death, the veil has been separated. The most holy, the veil that separated the most holy place was rent. And now all believers have access to the throne room of grace. And Hebrews 4.16 makes that clear. But the tabernacle pictures for the people of God a journey also at a deeper level, the journey to deeper intimacy with him as we grow up from newborn believers running to our Father through the veil for love, protection, and provision. We now have matured into believers that we enter into the same sanctuary at a deeper level, born out of a greater intimacy with the Father. So now we're down to a, a, a deeper level of understanding. As newborn believers, we have access to the most holy place, and we go running to our daddy, and we say, help, help, help. And he envelopes us in his arms, and he says, I'm here for you. Just like a little child always has access into daddy's arms. You know, daddy's the, the owner of the corporation. That little child can run through those doors, and he always has access. But a deeper level, those who have grown to full maturity, they can go through those doors as a ministering servant of the Lord, bearing greater privileges. This is what the Old Testament pattern of the oracle pictures for the believer. It is the place of greatest intimacy that positions the believer to obey 1 Peter 4.11. That's what it's all about. But we're seeing from these definitions that this time the issue is God. He's holy, and his, his holiness demands distinction. And as we conform ourselves to his mandate, then it is from this place of greatest intimacy that we can hear and understand the oracle of God and then speak it. So, and we've mentioned this before, and I want to just make this clear again, that this is not a salvation issue. This whole section of the book, when it talks about you don't qualify, you don't qualify, this isn't qualifying for salvation. We're talking about qualifying for a place of, of greater and greater intimacy to a sanctified holy God who demands that his sanctified sphere stay holy and undefiled. And as people endeavor or not endeavor 
to conform to that will dictate their physical proximity. So this is not a question of salvation. It's a question of rank and position in the kingdom of God. And that that rank and position, it does not equal value. Everybody in the kingdom has equal value. Equal value. It's just a matter of your place in the kingdom and then what you are capable. And as we continue this lesson, God will begin to bring greater and greater revelation as he builds upon this out. He's laying a brand new stone on the foundation that's been lost. In some places, this foundation has, has stonework that we have built upon on these fragments. But there's other places in this foundation where the stones are missing altogether. And one of the stones that God is placing through his word that he wants built upon, and he will bring revelation as we continue with these scriptures and their definitions, is his sanctity. And that even though we're saved and we've been washed by the blood of the lamb, that's what God does for the believer, and he brings them into the kingdom. But this place of greatest intimacy before the Lord, that's what a believer buffets his body to obtain, even as Paul was talking about, I think it's 1 Corinthians 9.27, and he says, I buffet my body, lest having brought you the message, I myself might be reprobate, lest I myself might be unqualified. He was not saying he was going to lose his salvation. That wasn't Paul's fear. He was afraid he was going to lose his place before his God within the kingdom. So the call of every believer is the oracle. It's the place of greatest intimacy to hear from God himself. Okay. And, and, and this is what God is desiring for all his people all the time in this day, in this place now. So, this is the endeavor. This is, this is the exhortation. And so my, my exhortation to you is don't take what we're telling you here and what is spoken as an assumed truth. Take everything to the Lord and ask God, you confirm this with your word and you confirm this with this, your spirit within me. And you only build upon that which God himself is confirming in your spirit. That is your confidence. Right there. That is your confidence. But um, I think what you're going to find as you pursue this, there is going to be one unwavering, unshakable truth, and that is this. This is the day that God is calling all of his people to the most holy place. He's calling all of his people to the oracle. He's calling all of his people to this place of greater and greater intimacy with himself. This is his heart's cry. This is his message. This is his call. The anointed summons to his side. And when you hear that message, you will know, and it will be confirmed in your spirit that it is truth, and you will be left with the decision, am I going to answer the call? Or am I going to continue my walk of common Christianity, frolicking in the profanity of the outer court, which is permissible and you are allowed, you will not lose your salvation. You will only lose the privileges born of the sanctified life that can bring you before the very presence of God in the most intimate way that you can hear what he's saying and do what he's doing. That's it, Adam. No, that's really good. And um, I can't express enough how 
this call of the Lord is going out. You know, there's been a lot of distractions that have been removed in people's lives right now in the time we're living in, and he's calling his people back to him. He's he's calling it. I mean, he he rendered the veil so that we can actually be in the presence of the Lord. He wants us to be in his presence. He wants us to be in his presence and grow in intimacy and there's a process that you've walked through. You did a wonderful job on what that looks like. And it is a sacrifice. That's because we are living sacrifices. Are we to deny ourselves fully and never have our eyes leave him? It's so important. And I love this, this study that's going on, this book. It's, it's so great because it's zeroing in on the very heart of God, and he's just calling us back to his very heart through intimacy. And with that being said, uh, that I know that's all I have. Uh, thank you again, Debbie, for everything, and I'm looking forward to hearing what's next, and I believe that is the um, duties of the priest and what that looks like. Not the duties of the priest, it's the... Yeah, the duties. It is the duties. Yes, it's the, the duties. duties of the priest. Yeah. Okay, I was right on that one. All right, well, <laughs> yeah, looking. And the qualification. And so the qualification. Yeah. Yes. All right. Uh, great. I will look forward to that conversation on the next episode. Thank you, Adam.